This is Digital Marketing Fastlane. This podcast will show you how to build, launch, grow, and scale a widely successful online business. Listen to real conversations with proven practical strategies and success stories. You're going to learn how to generate more traffic, more sales, more profit, and customer lifetime value for your online store. Coming to you from the online marketing experts at Voy Media, here's your host, Kevin Urrutia. Hey everyone, it's Kevin Nuruta here. I have a very special guest today. Today we have Chloe Thomas from the e-commerce master plan podcast. Hey Chloe, how are you doing today? Hey Kevin, I'm very good, thank you. Nice to be here with you. Awesome. Chloe, I'm so happy to have you on here. I would love for you to tell us a little about yourself, your podcast, of course, but then I also want to talk about maybe the new podcast you also have coming up. But yeah, let's talk a little bit about yourself and you know your background. Okay, so I've been in the world of e-commerce and marketing for over 15 years now. Done a whole host of different things in that time. I started off working in banking, then I got into retail, then I ran a marketing agency for 10 years. And then whilst I was running that, I started e-commerce master plan, which now is all about speaking and writing. So these days I host two podcasts, the e-commerce master plan podcast, which is for e-commerce business owners. And we feature an e-commerce business owner each week. And then the keep optimizing podcast, which is new and shiny and exciting, (laughs) which is a marketing podcast where each month we focus on a different marketing method. And during that month, we interview different experts about that particular marketing method. And we started off with email marketing and month two was all about SEO. And then... What else would we do? Oh, I speak at various conferences and I've written several books on the subject. So yeah, speaking and writing, that's pretty much what I do. Perfect. And then I really want to go back to sort of, you know, when you started first started doing e-commerce because you were working at banking, right? And then mm-hmm. how did you get into just like the e-commerce space and maybe take us back because this was what, maybe 10 years ago. How was that like, obviously e-commerce right now, it's like booming and everybody knows what e-commerce was, but when you were first joining this sort of space, what was it like and sort of, did you really know what it meant? Just sort of take us to there and I have a bunch of questions there. So whilst I was at uni, eBay kind of got quite big. You know, we didn't really do Amazon when Mm -hmm. I was at uni, but we did spend stupid money on stupid things Mm -hmm. on eBay back then. So that's that's to give you you guys an idea of where we were in the e-commerce space at that time. So when I was doing my degree, I managed to get myself an internship at Barclays Bank, which is one of the really big banks in the UK. And ended up doing marketing kind of by Mm. accident because finance sounded a bit dull and HR sounded a bit soft. So I went for the marketing, got the internship and got a job off the back of that. So I went to work in retail banking, doing marketing for a bit, but hated it. Too big a company, nothing ever happened. Some of the people were lovely. Some of the people were awful. So I kind of hatched an escape plan, which involved applying for every job (laughs) that was in marketing within an hour's drive of where I live. Nice, yeah, yeah. And the first one that offered me a job was a UK high street retailer called Pastimes, who had just over 100 physical stores, uh, a vibrant mail order catalogue business, selling giftware and home decor, and a starting off website. They had this mm. website they were starting to do things with. And I joined them to manage their catalogue mailings and got to play around with e-commerce as well for the first kind of 18 months I was there. So it was, e-commerce was at the point where people, lots of people were talking about e-commerce, lots of people were talking about how we, how we do it. Many of the conversations were actually the same as we have today, but the tech was an awful lot harder to deal with. So we had at pastimes, 
we had our website was built on IBM WebSphere, which is some software which you wouldn't touch unless you're enterprise size these days. Um, it's okay. it's a big beast of a software package, but it was pretty much the only option available back then, or one of the, one of very few. So we were using that, which was hosted on a machine in our offices. Oh wow! Um, and we were not in a good location yeah. for internet connection. So at Christmas, the entire business was banned from using the internet or email. <laughs> in order not to slow down the website because the website oh, wow. got so slow um yeah. yeah it was yeah interesting times yeah i guess like for, for our listeners this is like way before people right now are used to like shopify or woocommerce or um things were in the cloud cloud software where stuff is in stuff is hosted like by amazon essentially but yeah, yeah. i remember when i was working at mint this is a few years ago we also had our servers in like in the actual like building as well in like a room um that like basically server ops people had to go there but but now it's like you don't you never do that it's everything's cloud hosted and, and stuff like that but going back to what you said before like mm. e-commerce software back then was so different it was so difficult to use um and to really be in e-commerce you really have to like get like a tech team to build a sort of tech for you and i still remember when i was programming some of the first sort of software that we were building, like Ruby on Rails, was like an e-commerce store. And that was like, like just programming it. There was so much functionality and things that you don't even think about, like inventory, uh, adding items to the cart, removing items to the cart, emailing them, user accounts, logging out. There's so much stuff built in e-commerce software um, that like back then, yes, that was like really like super expensive to build. And it's crazy to think that now you have tools like Shopify, WooCommerce that just make it so easy. Um, so I think it's like interesting at, uh, now you probably see a lot, Chloe, where everybody can have an e-commerce store right now, but yeah. where back then no one really thought about doing it. And I think, what is it, does it make, do, do people, should people care about like maybe how the software is made or built in order to like truly understand like maybe e-commerce in general, or just do you think like, Hey, I you really like that Shopify came out just to make it super easy for people to build their own store. And now I guess really focus on purely the marketing side of the business. I think, it, I think what's happening in the tech stack space is brilliant because it gives us tools at a reasonable cost to enable us to do things, which means the barrier to being successful in e-commerce has now realigned to be much closer to what the customer cares about. Mm -hmm. So the barrier is no longer about, can you work out how to create an e-commerce yep. store and set it up? The barrier is now, can you come up with products that customers want? Can you deliver them to customers in a way that, that they care about? And can you create as seamless as possible a customer journey? you know so it becomes all about the experience about the quality about the connection kind of i guess the emotional connection or the story connection with the customer and i think that makes us a better industry because you know if you think back to the physical high street mm -hmm. world the businesses that succeeded were the ones who gave the customer what they want mm -hmm. and that will is now becoming the situation online so i think it's brilliant that the tech stacks become so easy but of course it does mean that anyone can be up and running uh, with a with a store in minutes I think as part of the new launch of my keep optimizing podcast something I'm doing is if people share an apple review on mm -hmm. social media with the hashtag they're going to prize draw to win a t-shirt I was like oh god how am I yeah. 
how am I going to do this? Because I'm only giving away about eight t-shirts and how you can't bulk order eight t-shirts effectively whilst knowing the sizes and all the rest of it. Like, oh, what am I going to do? Well, I know what I'll do. I'll set, set up a spreadshirt shop. Yeah. You know, so I've created a little merchandise store yeah. for the podcast because that's the easiest way for me to order t-shirts to have them ship around the world it's not massively cost effective but it's not hideous either that shop took me two hours to set up and at least 50 percent of that time was going does the logo look good on the pink t-shirt or shall i stop people from being able to have the pink t-shirt so completely unnecessary tasks i think that's brilliant but it does mean you have to have a good idea and you have to be clear on who your customer is and how you're going to connect with them I'm yeah, not sure if that, that answered your question. At no, all. yeah, that that totally makes sense, and it's like that. I like that story you told about kind of like retails, where even you see it here, we're in New York City. Like some of the best restaurants are like these mom and pop stores, where you go to them and they look really janky, but the food is really good, and that mm-hmm. goes back to said the value, the product is good. I think people are realizing realizing that now because even you probably see it now. You see all these stores, these websites that raise a ton of money. They have beautiful websites. But then like they just don't sell any product because they're focused on the branding and like how it looks aesthetically, but their product isn't actually good or it's just too expensive. And I think people are finally realizing that like most things are made in China or most things are made overseas. So like, at least for the USA here, people are like, design the USA. I'm like, okay, like you're not tricking anybody. I mean, I get that and I I like it, but like everybody knows it's made overseas because there's been so many articles about it. But quality in the product needs to be great. And and I think people are realizing they want value, not just like this aesthetics and but at the same time, it's tricky to, for people to think that because if you look at the big companies such as Apple, they're clearly like charging an arm and a leg, iPads, iPhones. But that's also because that's like a like what, 50, 60 year old company. And that's like, they can get there where I think as a new business owner, a new e-commerce store owner, you need to think about your value and then your brand will build up. This is a conversation I always have with people. It's like, what's more important, the brand or the product? And people are like, oh, the branding, I need to care about the branding. I'm like, you don't have a brand if you're not selling anything. So like, I'm not sure, like, what are your thoughts there? Because I get that all the time. Like, oh, this is against our brand values. I'm like, you you don't sell anything. Like what brand is there to, to like keep or preserve, right? So I think with any physical product business, the brand begins and ends with the product. Yep. Whether, you know, internally you manage that as having a set of brand guidelines that the product has to match up to, or whether you looked at the product and went, what's the point? Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. then you extrapolate the brand guidelines out of it. But it is you know, for most e-commerce businesses, the physical product is the only physical representation of the business. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the only time the customer physically interacts with you. And that's such a powerful interaction. It has to match up. Now, whether that brand, whether, you know, from a brand standpoint, you're going high price or low price or mid price and you're maximizing the margins, etc., And what the story is that fits around that product, the founding story, the product creation story, all those things have to come together to create the brand. Mm-hmm. But I always think, you know, to go, let's create a great logo and that's going to be our brand. Actually, the logo and the, the brand as such is, the, is what's formed by the building blocks of the people you hire, the messages you put out there, the product that you've, you create and sell. So I think brand is, a, is the eventual output of everything else you do. So I was talking to someone who I would name if I could remember them, but I can't. It was someone who I recently interviewed yeah. for my, my show and their business, they started out thinking they were mainly going to be sell, selling to men, created all these, this product, yeah. was doing all the marketing and about three months in, they realized, oh, 80% yeah. of those who bought so far are women. Ouch. 
And, yeah. you know, they had to rebuild the entire brand because their copy, everything was tailored mm. towards men, the social media and all the rest of it. So I think, you know, brands evolve. I think anyone who starts off thinking the brand they start the business with is the brand they end up with is, is naive. Yeah, I, I, think, I believe so too. And, and even for me, yeah, brands evolve. And then just in general, I always tell people, at least for me, you're going to get a brand when people buy your product and then they tell people about it. So, and then eventually like you have a brand because in the beginning it's, it's nothing this, uh, I was like, it doesn't matter. Like, let's just sell product and let's get custom product in your hands. Another thing, Chloe, I want to talk to you about is let's talk about how, I guess after your, after the, your, your job that you're doing marketing and you kind of like work at the other key commerce store, what made you want to start your own like sort of agency? And, and was this your own agency that you were at, were at which was called um, Digital Gearbox? At the very beginning, it was called Indium Web Management because I have a knack for terrible business names. I'm very good at terrible business names. So after that retailer that I worked at, I went and worked at a consultancy who looked after mail order businesses. They did the mail plans, they did some of the product selection and various other bits and pieces. And they needed someone to do e-commerce. So I joined them as their head of e-commerce and got to spend pretty much an entire year taking six well-established businesses pretty much online for the first time they all had some form of website but none of the websites were you know most of them didn't have the product online at the point where the catalog mailed mm-hmm. which makes yeah. one wonder what on earth was go- was going through their minds but anyway that's how how it was done back then um so that was a really really cool job and the guy who hired me to do that his idea was that if that worked out we would then turn it into a separate agency mm. that would be kind of a a marketing digital marketing team for mail order businesses so that's what we did so i was kind of accidental ended up running a business for the first two years i thought i was running the business i bought a lot of his stock out because it wasn't going the way he wanted it yeah. to and he went down to just an advisor and then I realized I really was running the business. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think over the course of the 10 years, it went through a lot of different structures, a lot of different shapes, a lot of different focuses, uh, two rebrands, I think it was possibly three, no two, I think it was two rebrands, yeah. made all the mistakes going for businesses and, um, and for agencies, learned a, a huge amount. But yeah, it's, I would never go back to being an employee, but, but I certainly didn't intend on becoming an agency owner. Off my own how many how big was your agency when you were running it like throughout the years like i think our best ever year was just over half a million turnover uk yeah. that's what 800 900 000 us yep a, a year right okay yeah cool. but about that and and we got up to nine employees at one point oh nice um, oh, wow that's pretty good yeah but of course one of the many mistakes i made was the the year i had nine employees was not the year i did half a million in turnover <laughs> it's like it always works like that yeah i was like yeah. it's like it's interesting it's sometimes as you grow and get bigger at least for us sometimes we think about it too like we're like oh we're we're growing we're hiring more people we should be making more money and then you realize like your profits your money goes down and like it's just like a much different type of headache and mm. sometimes it's like better to just be like okay let's just be five or six employees and make more profit each and also less headaches for everybody. For this company here, when you're running the 10 years, how were you guys getting new clients? Were you, were you actively doing marketing? Were you sort of, what was that process like for you guys? There was a lot of networking. I did quite a bit of speaking back then as well. And kind of um, informal partnerships with other people who were coaching people who needed 
Google. We may, we may need a Google Ads by that point. So who needed Google Ads? So yeah, we did quite a lot of that. We did, did a bit of our own pay-per-click, but that never did that mm-hmm. great for us. Webinars, mm-hmm. nothing groundbreaking, it has to be said. <laughs> Just a traditional marketing, yeah. 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 Okay, cool. And then I really wondered, at what point did you start thinking about starting you know, your e-commerce mastermind podcast? And really, how did you start thinking about doing a podcast? Because I guess back then, a podcast were very new. Obviously, now everybody knows what they are and sort of they're grown so much. And we we're talking about it earlier, how like the podcast space has just grown. But like even five, six years ago, no one was really hearing about podcasts or even talking about it. what made you decide to sort of start one? I created the business e-commerce master plan in 2012 mm-hmm. as an exit strategy from the agency because I realized that well, I'd realized that I was a massive introvert. I'm a long way down the introvert end of the introvert extrovert scale. So running an agency where you are managing relationships, human relationships, which are highly unpredictable and incredibly exhausting for an introvert with my team, my new business funnel and my clients was just the worst possible place I could be. So I started trying to find ways to leave the agency and the escape vehicle was e-commerce master plan, which started off with the books. And so I was doing various bits of speaking and um, social media, I guess kind of brand or given what we just said about brand, I'll say awareness building <laughs> rather yeah. than brand building. Personal and, branding. Yeah. Yeah. Personal branding kind of, kind of stuff. Yeah. And then as part of that, I was on a, kind of educational conference tour of the southwest of england with our export government export body who are putting together these events to encourage the people of the southwest to sell their products overseas and i was one of the speakers one of the other speakers on this was a guy called matt young uh, who's a social media expert but who was talking about so this was in 2014 and he was talking about how podcasting was huge and going to be one of the biggest things in the future so I did what you shouldn't do when you're a speaker at an event and I monopolized another speaker over lunch. <laughs> so yeah. I went, Matt, I need to talk to you. Have lunch with me. And he went, yeah, all right. <laughs> so we, yeah, yeah. we sat down and he explained podcasting. And I was like, oh, that sounds like my sort of thing. Because, you know, one of the problems we'd always had with both businesses was that e-commerce business owners tend not to leave their desks. Yep. So you can't network with them to sell to them. And it's hard to speak in front of them. So I was like, right, podcast, listen to it at your desk. This sounds like a good idea. And, you know, I've always been, because of, you know, what I've done over the years, I've been privileged to have some amazing conversations with retailers, but not being able to tell anyone what we spoke about because they were all off the record. You probably have the same thing. The most amazing conversations off the record. So like, well, maybe I could marry these two things up and create a podcast. So I spent, about six months, you know, working on the ideas and clearing the deck so I knew I could launch it well because, you know, a decent launch takes a lot of time. So, so removing all distractions. And then in 2015, we finally went live with it. So, yeah, it was, it was a journey. That's so crazy. Yeah, I, I love podcasting. And when I first heard about when I, I started podcasting, at least for me here, was when, like, I just listened to it every day. And I was like, I'm learning so much while I'm running, while I'm walking. I'm having these great conversations with the reason why I like podcasts because you feel like you kind of know that person because they're like mm. in your ears all the time. And it's like a weird experience. It's like, Oh, that's that person. Like you're like, you get comforted with like just hearing their voice and just like knowing how they sound or what they're learning. But yeah, that's how kind of like, I love podcasts. And it's sort of, I was listening to your podcast for years before I even connected with you. Cause I was like, Oh, this is so good. And I, and then plus oh, you, have, you. You, have, you have a unique voice. Cause you're like from obviously overseas. So I was like, okay, like mm. this is very unique. And like, I, I understand what you're saying. Let's talk about the podcast. 
how have you seen that growth and, and like so from when you started to like now obviously you have two now but what was that like initial growth like and sort of how did you tell people you're doing this and what were some of their reactions maybe like how do people feel yeah it's interesting because those of us in the podcasting world and those of you out there listening you know what a podcast is you know it's probably audio only and that you have to go to a podcast app to get it and that you can listen to it anywhere and it's free but those messages to the wider world and the majority of the world still don't listen to podcasts they assume they're going to be charged they think it's a video they've no idea how to listen to it and um, they just don't get it. So a lot of, you know, when I'm out and about in the world and on social media as well, a lot of what I spend the time doing, not from day one, because I didn't quite realise day one, but since then, a lot of it is about this is what a podcast is and almost trying to get people to come and read the show notes. Mm-hmm. So then they see the big play button and go, oh, I wonder what that does. And yeah, they yeah. hit it. And, oh, yeah. And then, of course, people think it's live as well and it's not on demand, yeah. which is also quite tricky. It's been interesting growing it, but... <laughs> I hang out in a lot of podcasters Facebook groups yeah. and you see people come in and they're like, I want to grow my podcast. How do I grow my podcast? Yeah. And you know, and the old hats go back and say, create great content and be consistent. And you just know they're going, that was not the answer I yeah. wanted, but it's true. You know, you have to consistently put out content because really what you're trying to do is you're trying to get someone first off to subscribe. So they start mm-hmm. seeing you in their feed. Then you're trying to get them to actually hit play and listen which means putting out great content so at some point they go oh that one actually sounds worth half an mm-hmm, hour of mm-hmm. my time and then you're trying to keep them listening so it's a very much a long-term thing and you know if I could tell you exactly how I'd grown it over the years I'd be making a lot of money selling that that um, <laughs> that list to people but but a lot of social media a lot of connecting with people and trying to get great guests that that seems to be the way to do it exactly what you said it's like even for us we've been doing the podcast now for only a year now but it's constantly even for us like here i was telling you like we're doubling down on more podcasts just because we love doing it and also we have a, we just plan it out every friday at like 1 or 2 p.m to do an episode or two and then we just plan it out and then we record but um it's so funny you say that like when i tell people you're doing a podcast it's still like oh what's a podcast you're like oh why would i ever listen to that I'm like, first of all, you're in a car, you're listening to a radio. That's exactly what a podcast is, except for like the radio decides what to tell you to listen to. With a podcast, you say, this is what I want to learn. I'm like, mm-hmm. it's not anything different. And like podcasting is just like Howard Stern is a massive like guy here, like audio. And I'm just like, it's the same thing. Like people love Howard Stern. He's just like a big podcast, but it's just not, it's not framed as a podcast. It's just like interviews. Yeah. It's like, and it's like uh, when people watch like TV or news reports, that's like a podcast. Like one of my favorite podcasts is the daily by the New York times, which is just like daily news. I'm like, this is an audio version of it. when you like, sometimes you don't need like the visual aspect of it. At least for me, like when I think about just sort of like even e-commerce in general, I feel like e-commerce with audio stuff is still like an infancy. Obviously you probably know like Alexa. All right. That's stuff that you people should be thinking about because there's so much stuff happening with our audio and we're not really thinking about, especially the AirPods where you can like tell it to do things. I think that's a group opportunity for growth. And you've probably seen it too, maybe like your SEM days where there's a Google now and like you can search for things online now. So yeah, the, it, it strikes me that there's an, we're still at the point in the e-commerce space where voice search is yeah. something that a lot of supplier side businesses are talking about, but not many retailers have yet gone, 
I get how that could work for me. Yeah. There's one retailer I've come across who have voice search operating on their website, which is a retailer called Cox and Cox, mm. C-O-X and C-O-X in the UK who do furniture and they've now got voice search on their actual website, which is pretty cool. I haven't heard any results from that yet, but it's only been on for, for a month or so. But it's one of these things and you see them, you know, over the years, yeah. various trends where as supplier side, we talk about it loads and we talk about it loads yeah. and we talk about it loads and the clients never quite get around to it. And I think voice search is one of those, which there'll be a case study in the next kind of 12, 18 months of how someone's nailed it. And yep. then everyone will want to do, do voice search. Yeah. Cause I, I just, I just think it makes sense. Like when you talk to your friends about, things you're buying you're describing it like with audio or visually so it's like even when you're like oh what type of shirt do you like i'm like oh you know i want something that's like light blue but like not too tight and it's like that's like a description why can't i just say it to like a, a store or even like something like google and they're like oh here's shirts that look like this right and i think that will be big kind of like i think if you think about it like a pinterest for just audio right where like pinterest is like you can search for all this stuff and it's like these like or an Etsy for just audio or an eBay for just audio, right? Essentially like yeah. a marketplace, something like that. But yeah, I, I still think that audio stuff, even the podcast is just like a great way for people to understand. Like there's so much power in just like audio and listening or talk, listen to someone speak. So I, I love podcasting. <laughs> and then I really want to uh, maybe go more on the podcast stuff. How has that helped you sort of, because I remember you were saying how like in 2012, you really wanted to get out of your digital gearbox because you kind of like, over uh, not like you want to do something different how did the podcast sort of maybe pro propel that sort of process because eventually you ended up selling your company correct or sort of i did yeah and yeah i, I often thought shall i just close it and go and mm -hmm. do something else um the podcast i don't know if the podcast did accelerate the exit plan i think it, it helped make sure that when i got to the end of when i sold i had something to yeah. actually do <laughs> yeah yeah um because the, the post sale, the first year post sale was can e-commerce master plan make money? And then the second year was can e-commerce master plan make money in a way I want it to make money. And now I just have fun and make yeah, money. Yeah. But yeah, it, 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 I'm not sure it really changed the process to sale. It certainly enabled me to know what I was going to do post sale a lot earlier mm -hmm. and be a lot better prepared for that. Okay, cool. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And then uh, how did it feel, I guess, when you finally, I guess, sold your digital gearbox you know i guess that was like uh being totally honest it was a little bit of an anti-climax okay because by that point i was living 230 miles away from the business <laughs> wow so i only went i only saw them which i don't think i've been even been to the head office for a few months by that point i think we got to the point where i was just turning up for quarterly mm -hmm. um quarterly meetings you know team meetings which we generally did in london because it was fairly easy for the team yeah. to get down there. It was easy for them to get to London. It was for me to, for, for them, for me to get to the office. Yeah. And I was pretty much only doing a day a week. <laughs> yeah. So it was a little bit, there was no kind of like, wow, yeah. this feels really weird. I'm not going in. There was no kind of front of mind weirdness. Yeah. But for the next few months, I kind of felt like I was wrapped in a duvet. Yeah, okay. You know, it was all just not quite getting how the world was. There was definitely a, a recovery period. And then the moment where I knew I'd made the right decision, because I was, I was giving the, the person yeah. who bought it off me some coaching for the first few months. And the moment I knew I'd made the right yeah. decision was when she joined one of our, one of our calls a few months post-launch and went, oh my God, I went, why, what's happened? And she yeah. went, this and this and this. 
and three HR headaches had turned up in the same week. Yeah. And I was like, I'm more than happy to help and guide you through this, but I'm yeah. so glad I don't have to deal with it. <laughs> yep. Oh my God. Yeah. I, I know that feeling. Yeah. It's like, uh, when we sold the company back then, it's like, and then you're seeing the issues or like, we're just like, you're just like, oh my God, I'm so happy that isn't me anymore. Just because like that struggle is just like gone and you're just like, oh, okay, I'm so happy. That's not just me anymore. Yeah. yeah. That was the point I completely knew I'd done the right thing because, you know, a lot of, a lot of business coaches or, you know, business exit advisors, why don't you just keep 10%, let them run it and take the money? Yeah. And it's like, well, yeah. And, and, and another reason I knew I'd done the right thing yeah. was because three months after yeah. we, we sold, they signed the most number of clients we'd ever sold in a month wow. for the whole 10 years I'd run it. And I was like, yeah, this business is better without me in it. So I really knew I'd done the right thing, but it was knowing I, and, and a complete exit was the right thing to have yeah. stayed in with an equity stake would not have given me the brain freedom that I wanted to get from it. Yeah. And I think that's the key thing where people sometimes they don't want to sell, uh, they should sell the company, but like, they don't realize that like, there's just like brain uh, space that just takes up thinking about it. Just saying, Oh, like you still kind of need to think about it because it's still kind of yours, but there's a freedom in just knowing that like I completely hands off and anything I can or do is just sort of doesn't affect the business anymore. And you're perfectly fine and happy with that. Cause I've had that happen too, where like, even for us, like as an agency, it's like when you bring on partners and you're kind of like, oh, I kind of work with, them, kind of want to work with them, kind of don't. And but when you do, and they're just like not a great client, they just take up so much mental space. But you, when you yeah. know, like you should have just said no, like we're not working together because you're just not a good fit. And then just like you just greet them, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah and it, and it, as I think I said, um, by the time the we got to the end, I was doing one day a week in that business, and it was literally Monday I worked in that business the rest of the week. Yeah bar a couple of meetings I worked on e-commerce master plan but after I'd sold it it felt like all of a sudden I was able to spend all my time on on e-commerce master plan and the despite the fact I felt like I was wrapped in a duvet for the next next few months the acceleration of change and improvement at e-commerce master plan even though it was only 20% of my time that had changed was was amazing because my brain only cared about one business model yeah not multiple the the mental clarity is so much Mm. much better and that company, I'm guessing you don't really keep in touch too much with them or like they're still thriving and still doing their own yeah, thing. Yeah, they're doing great. Yeah. Um, they've just started a podcast actually about pay-per-click. Oh, nice. So, um, no, yeah. no, they're lovely. I occasionally, if, I, if we're at the same event, well, when yeah. in the world where we actually yeah. attended events, we'd catch yeah. up and um, no, I think they're, they're a brilliant team and they're doing great things. Another question for you, Chloe, is I'm assuming you've been, you've been working from home for a long time now, right? For like a few years. What made you kind of do that? Cause like you were saying that like you were over 200 miles away. At one point you're just like, oh, I just want to work from home or you just moved out. What was like that sort of process like? Well, I live in, uh, and I grew up in a remote part of the UK called Cornwall, which is down in the far Southwest corner. So we're 250 miles from London. It's about four hours. A lot of people come here on holiday and I live at a village of about 12 houses. So yeah, it's, it's kind of tiny. And yeah. I grew up here, but we all knew growing up that we had to leave to get work. So I left and there was always, I'll be back in four years, I'll be back in four years, yeah. I'll be back in four years. And then one day work, walking home from the office in the rain, I was like, sod it, I could go home now. So within six yeah. months, I'd moved back to Cornwall. And I said, I took one of my trusted team members aside and said, right, Rachel, 
I'm thinking of doing this. What do you think? And she said, to be honest, Chloe, the office works better when you're not in it. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, oh, okay, the team will be fine. Yeah. Off I go. So we started, you know, we started um, a system of Google Hangouts at that time. And that yeah. was about six, seven years ago. Okay. And yeah. And at that point I was going up every other week to see them. Okay. So, um, That's a pretty good. Yeah. So you got, you were started a long time ago, but you saw like the writing on the wall, like this is like how you want to work. And it's just more efficient. I think working from home too. I said, I guess like at least in the space that we're in, you know, at that point you're doing digital marketing. So it just makes yeah, sense. I mean, at, at the moment I'm working on building an office, mm -hmm. uh, about 300 yards away from the house. Oh, nice because it's time to move the office out of yeah. the actual house. But yeah, it, it was partly because, partly that introvert thing again, to be able to just spend my day on my own, mm -hmm. having the, so, so I can spend that kind of chaos energy, the people energy on the things that matter rather than being someone it's not hideous to be sat in the same room yeah, as. Yeah. Um, that's, you know, one of the things I was going for. Plus, you know, moving to Cornwall, there wasn't any other options. I wasn't bringing the agency with me, so. Yeah awesome um okay cool a few more questions for you i really want to talk about your books how did it sort of like i know that was like a part of the plan but how did you sort of start your first one i know right now you have five books but like how was that first one and sort of um what kind of made you decide to do that one book there were two things one was that whilst at events i went this was back in 2012 2011 i think i started writing it but I would go to an, to events and I'd say, it's crazy. The mail order world, there's this really straightforward blueprint to follow. You know, you can hire the people who know how to lay out a catalog well. You know, these are the suppliers you need. This is the process. This is the blueprint. And it's very easy for anyone to start up in mail order. They, I could tell them a couple of people to speak to and they would do it incredibly well. But there isn't one for e-commerce. And I would bemoan this regularly whilst chatting to people over coffee. And then... I was part of a mastermind group where someone had asked the question, how do you write a book? And was sat there whilst the other 13 people in the room debated uh, and, and shared knowledge of how to write books and discovered that the thing which everyone else thought was hard was writing the actual book. Mm. And I was like, well, writing a book sounds really easy to me. Yeah. And I've got this problem that I want to write for people. So I'm right, let's do that. Let's write, let's write e-commerce blueprint how to be successful selling online and sketched it out very quickly then did a google ads test on the name e-commerce blueprint and the click-through rates were much better for e-commerce yeah. master plan so it ended up being called e-commerce yeah. master plan and yeah and five books later yeah. still nice. here and then all your books are on amazon correct are they all self-published are you working with publishers they're all self-published. Um, you can find them all at Amazon or if you go to ecommercemasterplan.com forward slash books, you will find links to them on Audible and all the other places they are. But all five of them are available as paperback, ebook and um, audiobook. Oh, nice. Do you do your own audio books too? You, you do the voice? Initially, I didn't because we got to the point where the, where the podcast was going to go live and I was like, man, I don't have audiobooks. So yeah. I discovered that via a tool called ACX, which is part okay. of very closely aligned with Amazon and Audible. You can do a royalty split for seven years and get someone else to read it for you. So I did that with the first three, yeah. which uh, one of those doesn't exist any longer, but two of them are still up there. One uh, yeah. done by a, a lovely New Yorker called Joe Bronzy, another one done by Matt Young, who's the guy who got me into podcasts. Yeah. So that was a really cheap way <laughs> of yeah. getting the books up on Audible. 
and then I had complaints from podcast listeners that I should have read my own books. <laughs> Do you know how much time that takes? That's a lot. Yeah. I need that service for my own book, actually, because I don't want to do the audio version. It's just, I'm like, oh my, it's going to be so much talking. Yeah, it, it's a lot of talking. And the reviewers on Audible are harsh if they don't like the way you read it as well. So my worst reviews are on Audible across everything I do. I currently have on, on the latest book, e-commerce marketing, the only review, it might have changed my life, but the only review yeah. up on Audible is one star and it says, buy the book don't listen to this audible oh it hasn't been written for audible there's too many lists it's like well that's the book i can see every week someone's buying it despite this one star review i know my audience want to listen to it yeah so i can't comp i can't write a completely different book just for, for the audible. audio yeah yeah but no, that's, that's so funny uh, yeah i need i need to i need to, you need to send me that service because i need to use it for my book because i'm like you're like oh do you have an audiobook i was just like no but like oh don't you have a podcast i'm like i do but like it's a different type of thing you're like yeah uh, yeah I'll, um, i will happily send you send you those details um, and a couple of tips on making it work well but yeah yeah and then there's there's another review on audible that i speak too fast and they wish i'd just take a breath so the most recent one i have slowed down but apparently i shouldn't have done it as an audiobook anyway but yeah, yeah. everyone's entitled to their opinion yeah, yeah. and yeah, you know, know that feeling, yeah that um, show that a one-star review will increase your sales more than no reviews. So I'm, it shows, I'm yeah, it shows that someone's actually like listened to it. It's like, oh, okay, cool. Yeah. Like this is a, it goes back to e-commerce in general. It's just like reviews are great just because it shows um, that someone's actually paying attention. Okay, Chloe, I have one last question for you is where can our listeners, you know, maybe find out about your new podcast yourself and then your current podcast? Cool. You can find everything I'm up to and have done at ecommercemasterplan.com. And the new podcast, if you'd like to go and check that out, and that one currently, last time I checked, had five-star reviews, not nice. a one-star review. So well worth going and yeah. having a listen to. But you can find everything about that one at keepoptimizing.com. And that's optimizing with an S, yeah. not a Z, because I'm British and I'm being belligerent about the spelling, which I'm sure there are plenty of people out there in the world of SEO telling me I'm an idiot for doing yeah. it this way. But I'm sticking with the S. So keepoptimizing.com. Perfect. Chloe, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I learned a lot. I love, I love talking to you. Thank you. Thanks, Kevin. Awesome chatting to you too. This week's episode of Digital Marketing Fastlane was brought to you by the performance marketing experts at Voy Media. Join us again next time as we'll be bringing you more tips, techniques, and know-how to make your online business the very best that it can be. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback, we'd love to hear them on Twitter at Voy Media. Thank you.